this yes. is hell. All right, then. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. The oil and gas industry has done a great job of convincing us that without oil or gas, our lives would be miserable, if not unlivable. Without oil and gas, not only would we not be able to drive our cars or keep our homes heated on cold winter nights, like the cold winter nights we have been experiencing here in Chicago lately and will again this weekend, but without petrochemicals created by the oil and gas industry, we would be unable to have the plastics that we depend upon in nearly every facet of our lives, including healthcare that keeps us alive during a pandemic. We would not be able to have the fertilizers that help our food grow and feed us every day, or the lubricants to run all that machinery that makes our lives convenient, or so the oil and gas industry would like us to believe. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us do. We've been convinced because as our upcoming guest points out, while the rest of us were playing checkers, the oil and gas industry executives were playing three-dimensional chess. With these kinds of advertising campaigns, it should come as no surprise that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a world without fossil fuels, with apologies to Frederick Jameson. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Jeff Nesbitt, co-author of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning, The Oil and Gas Industry Has Refined Its Techniques to Stay a Step Ahead Over Decades, and it has no plans to stop anytime soon. And that headline, by the way, how big oil rigs and then how the oil and gas industry has refined is full of clever puns. Jeff is the author of 2018's This Is The Way The World Ends, how droughts and die-offs, heat waves and hurricanes are converging on America. He also wrote the 2015 book, Poison Tea, How Big Oil and Big Tobacco Invented the Tea Party and Captured the GOP, which exposed for the first time the close ties between the tobacco industry and Coke donor network front groups. Jeff once helped lead efforts by the FDA to regulate cigarettes. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Nesbitt. Find out more about Jeff at jeffnesbitt.net. That's Jeff, N-E-S-B-I-T. Jeff wrote the article we'll be discussing shortly with science historian Naomi Oreskes, who is the author of several books, including 2019's Why Trust Science, as well as Merchants of Death, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Climate Change, which came out back in 2011. The article we will be discussing is published as part of Covering Climate Now, a global collaboration of news outlets strengthening coverage of the climate story. And it is about time that such an organization began. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how's life been treating you? Uh, <laughs> I think that just explained it. Sorry, the crowded room back here. Uh, I'm really missing the bar, man. For Christmas, I got a package of like really fresh Szechuan peppercorns which no one in my house wants to eat but me. It's something I would be making for the bar usually on a Wednesday, uh, one day. (laughs) So you're not going to the bar tonight? Nah. 
I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm still really Everyone on my block has coronavirus, and if I get this stuff, my kid can't go to school for two weeks. So I'm as isolated as can be, unfortunately. And I'm peppercorns no, by myself. And I'm now even more freaked out by Deltacron. And Alex, tell us who is joining you in the producer's booth today. Uh, Sebastian is here, and I'm going to turn the mic over to him, and uh, hopefully it doesn't make too much of a sound. <laughs> Sebastian, what's new by you? Anything since we spoke last? Uh, not much, not much. I mean, I got, well, depending on when... Uh, when you think we spoke last. I mean, we spoke last yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> so not a lot has happened. But the last time since I said anything, uh, remark of any, you know, remark on uh, this channel, uh, I was about to get married. So now I am married. Um, and so now we're just in the in the throes of, uh, yeah, post-marital bureaucracy, <laughs> um, trying to get joint bank accounts and all that stuff. Oh, that it's, sounds like fun. Uh, did you uh, have any sort of honeymoon? Not, not really. Not yeah. really. I mean, we took uh, we took my mother to see uh, her mother, who lives up in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. Uh, that sounds was, very romantic. I mean, it was like the the trip was nice. The presence of like uh, mutual mothers-in-law is, of course. Um, Dicey, but it all went over pretty well. I like how you said mothers-in-law, like courts martial. You did that appropriately. Where in the UP? Uh, Escanaba. Oh, no kidding. I have family up in Marquette and uh, way up at the tip of the Leelanau Peninsula. We just bought, bought back property uh, that was owned by their family for centuries. They just bought it back from uh, some people who decided not to live in the UP with their 360 inches of snow every year. Go figure. <laughs> I am very worried, yet relieved, that I am seeing my doctor tomorrow following our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. While my bronchitis seems to have left my lungs, many of the symptoms have migrated to my throat. They still remain there, and my hypochondria is imagining all sorts of awful ailments. Maybe it's COPD, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, strep, or maybe a polyp on my vocal cords, which would suck because... None of those are a good thing to have if you are doing four hours of radio shows and podcasts every week, plus the additional Patreon show, totaling nearly five hours of weekly on-air content. I've been, I've even cut back on all my vices that my doctor has suggested I stop, at least temporarily. I'm nearly certain it's not COVID because only 5 to 10% of COVID cases are only sore throats without any additional problems like having a fever. Well, whatever the problem is, my doctor seemed to think it was serious enough that he wanted me to make an appointment as soon as possible. So I called up yesterday and he said, come in on Thursday. One thing I can tell you is that after every show, I have a sore throat and that's got to end. But more important than my growing concerns over my ability to speak. Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell is what are you testing positive for what are you testing positive for and i am aware that i'm not alex but you are sebastian and that's all that matters and you have the question from hell the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want that this is hell t-shirt tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug that this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to those of you who have visited thisishell.com and clicked on support recently, including... 
Nora D. in Bloomingsburg, Ohio, who picked up a This Is Hell trucker cap. Thanks to Vincent G. in Clinton Corners, New York, who chose a This Is Hell t-shirt. And thanks to Daniel M. in Jackson, Mississippi, who got a trucker cap, a tote bag, and a This Is Hell guide to the 21st century USB drive. So thanks, Nora, Vincent, and Daniel. We truly appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff surrenders to his happy place, which sounds frightening. Alex will be sharing your answers. Alex and Sebastian will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our conversation with Jeff on how big oil rigs the system to keep winning. Again, the question from hell is what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Not only can you contact us via email at chuck at this is hell.com, message us via Facebook, tweet at us at this is hell radio, but you can send us actual stuff in the actual mail by addressing it to this is hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois 60659. That's this is hell. 2251 West Devon, D-E-V-O-N Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And this week we got something in the mail from last week's Question from Hell winner, Chris B., who wrote to us saying, Dear Chuck and Alex, and I'm certain he meant Sebastian as well, I was delighted, delighted, hmm, I was delighted to hear this week that my answer to the Question from Hell, what would make your life 1% better, a kiss on the lips, was the winner. I would be pleased to receive the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century USB flash drive as my prize sent to the P.O. Box above, blah, 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 blah. Being a longtime listener and Patreon subscriber, I've also been meaning to add This Is Hell to the mailing list for Mainer, M-A-I-N-E-R, the free monthly magazine about Maine published by our worker co-op, the Mainer News Cooperative. Past contributors to Mainer include your pal Kate Sykes, who wrote the article The Milk of Human Cruelty for the March 2020 issue, and currently longtime This Is Hell fan Dan Kay's daughter, Phoebe, who is also known as Kid Number Two. I have enclosed our current issue and a few favorites from the past for your enjoyment. And uh, I'll tell you on patreon.com uh, slash this is hell uh, this week who Dan Kay is related to. It's a past guest, and you'd be surprised who it is. Deepest thanks for producing your most excellent program. <laughs> your interviews have informed and improved our journalism, in particular, your interview last year with Keller Easterling about her book Medium Design inspired me to employ more subtly subversive means of communicating radical political ideas to the public, such as our new satiric superhero comic V-Land and first-person narratives like Kenny Wayne Beek's Transience Memoir that aim for the heart rather than the head because again, social justice would be nice but a kiss on the lips works wonders too in solidarity, Chris Busby Editor-in-Chief Maynard Thanks, Chris. And first, I want to commend you on your perfectly punctuated letter with exceptional grammar. Not that I would notice that kind of thing, but my uncommon law non-wife, who is an editor by trade, did, and she wanted to make certain I commended you. Second, thanks for the issues of Maynard. 
which I'll be pouring over tomorrow while waiting in the doctor's office, as well as throughout this weekend. Finally, as I've noted before, I have no idea why we have so many listeners, not only in Portland, Maine, but Portland, Oregon. It's not like that's our target demographic. Or is it? In the mail this week, we also received Johan Hari's new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Johan has been on our show several times. You can search on his last name, H-A-R-I. And he's going to be back on later this month when the book Stolen Focus is finally published here in the United States. It's already out in the U.K., so if you wanted to order it through a U.K. publisher publishing site, you can. If you want to send us actual stuff in the actual mail, send it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Again, that's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. I was very glad to hear from listener Justin, who had sent us something in the mail, but it never arrived. It has now arrived at Justin's home, so he's going to try to send it to us again. Coming up, how the oil and gas industry convinced us that life would be impossible without the oil and gas industry. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can uh, subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? As well as Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Again, Jeff surrenders to his happy place. Live from the nightmare of want... This is hell. For over a half century, the oil and gas industry has done a hell of a job telling us that without them, we would be miserable and it would be a one-way ticket back to the end of modernity. They keep us protected from infestations uh, that bring disease, drought, and famine, or so they claim. Without them, we would not be able to go anywhere at any time without major delays and inconveniences as they've tried to convince us. Simultaneously, as climate change has shown us, life as we know with the oil and gas industry may be unsustainable. Here to help us understand how we've been convinced of the necessity of burning fossil fuels and why we should not be so convinced, Jeff Nesbitt is co-author of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jeff. Oh, well, thanks for having me. By the way, I have to say, I really liked Sebastian's um, uh, description of post-marital bureaucracy. I think he's got the, a, a new book title there. I think he needs to get to work on that. So I got a kick out of that. I also have, I also have to say, I, I just, I just want to warn everybody, I've wandered into this program uh, with lots of good intentions. I just want to make sure that everybody understands that. Oh, sure. And uh, the other thing is that, uh, yeah, that's a, wouldn't that be a great line of work being a post-marital bureaucrat? That should, that should be a new job. That'd be a great job. I haven't thought about that. Why am I doing a radio show and a podcast, Jeff, when I could be a post-marital bureaucrat? You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Nesbitt. That's N-E-S-B-I-T. And you can find out more about Jeff at jeffnesbitt.net. And I just want to make sure that everybody knows Jeff wrote the article. That we'll be discussing. Uh, he wrote this article with science historian Naomi Oreskes, who is the author of several exceptional books, including Merchants of Doubt and Why Trust Science. This article is published as part Part of covering climate now, a global collaboration of news outlets strengthening coverage of the climate story. So you and Naomi, you write that despite countless investigations, lawsuits, social shaming and regulations dating back decades, the oil and gas industry remains formidable. After all, it has made consuming its products seem like a human necessity. 
But Jeff, isn't it? We depend upon petrochemicals, lubricants, plastics, fertilizers that are all oil and gas industry products, as well as heating our homes. So how dependent are we upon the oil and gas industry for what could be referred to as a modern life? So we, let's, let's, let's break that down just a little bit. You're, yes, you're right. We, we do. Um, but the truth is, going forward, we don't necessarily have to anymore. And that's actually the, the, the battle of the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years. It's, it's a battle in our cars. It's a battle in our homes. It's a battle um, in manufacturing. It's a battle everywhere. And, you know, you know, and, and part of the reason why Naomi and I uh, wrote the article and did the research and went through the history of this is that people need to understand um, that the, the oil and gas industry you know, they, they are constantly looking five, six, seven steps down the road. So they were positioning natural gas, just to use one example, as natural um, long before anybody else knew um, even what it was or where, where, it could, where it could be extracted and used in homes and, and other places. So much so that everybody, you know, if you poll the American public, they just assume that gas is natural. It's not natural. It's, you know, mostly methane. It burns. It's a fossil fuel and it's um, a super pollutant. It causes lots of harm in the atmosphere, but that's a lot of what we break down. I also want to put in a plug for Naomi's work. She, well, first of all, Merchants of Doubt, her book was made into a movie. So if you haven't seen that movie from Participant Media, watch it. It sort of goes through how the same you know, merchants of doubt, you know, they, they get paid very well to cast doubt on science translates across all of these issues like the tobacco wars, like um, what we're going through with climate change. Um, she's also more recently, she and her research team out of Harvard have really gone back and looked specifically at ExxonMobil's marketing practices for the last 30, 40, 50 years, whether they were mobile, whether they were Exxon, whether they're ExxonMobil, and they have been incredibly sophisticated in how they've done their marketing over the last 40 or 50 years. And that's really the subject of what we wrote about. And let's get to methane, even though it's a little bit deeper into your article, but you write that methane is an even more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, yet it has received far less attention. One reason is that the oil and gas industry has positioned methane, which marketing experts cleverly labeled natural gas, as the future of the energy economy. As a, a presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton insisted that natural gas should be the transition fuel from fossil fuels to alternative sources of energy, supposedly things like solar and wind. Do you think politically she would would have done so if the media had not fell for the oil and gas industry marketing their alternative fossil fuel product as natural gas. After all, even on this show, myself, as well as many guests, have referred to it as natural gas, when which I hope to never do again. But do you think politically she would have done so if the media had not fallen for the oil and uh, gas industry marketing? I, it, it's taken quite a while for people to figure out you know, what was going on here. So a simple answer is no, I don't think she would have fallen for it. Had, had, had the media been reporting on this um, uh, in the ways that they are now. I mean, you can still look in any major city. You'll, you'll, you're likely to see buses wandering through the streets saying powered by clean natural gas. You'll see that everywhere. And that is, that's pure marketing. It's marketing one-on-one. They've been do doing it for a very long time. And I, quite honestly, it's brilliant. I mean, let's be real about it. It's brilliant. They've positioned natural gas as absolutely critical. But here's the thing, and, and you can see this in city, even New York City now took this up. If you're cooking in your home, you don't have to cook with a natural gas stove. You do if it's already in your home and you're renting it, but there is a war going on for your kitchen and in your heating space. 
if if you replaced your you know your your natural gas stove with an induction stove, Michelin star chefs will tell you it's probably easier, better. It's certainly better for the interior of the home to cook with an induction stove. You don't have to cook with a natural gas stove, but yet everybody seems to think, oh, I have to have a natural gas stove or I won't be able to cook properly. None of that's true, but but that's where we are. And likewise, in terms of how you heat your home, you should have a heat pump. You should you be using electricity. To, to heat your home. It's cheaper, it's more efficient, it's cleaner, um, and yet we don't know that. And all this goes back to the fact that the industry has spent hundreds of millions of dollars, which nobody else has and can compete with, to position gas as natural and, and potentially clean. And, 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 and also, we, let me just step back just a second, because it is true that if natural, you know, that natural gas can be a bit cleaner than coal when it's burned in a in a power plant if 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 you know if it doesn't leak out but the problem is natural gas and methane are leaking everywhere they're leaking in pipelines they're leaking in your home they're leaking from orphan wells they're 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 being flared and vented at you know hundreds or thousands of of wells where you know in in the permian basin and elsewhere so so yes, it's true that it's possible that natural gas can be a cleaner, you know, fuel than than coal, um, but only if none of it escapes. Which is why you see the global methane pledge, which we can talk about if you'd like, um, at the Glasgow COP became a big deal um, when 110 countries signed on to reducing methane by 30 percent from existing levels. So did the U.S. sign on to that? They not only did the United States sign on to that, they led that effort. So John Kerry's team, he's the, you know, he's the climate czar of the State Department, former Secretary of State. He and, and their team um, uh, did a brilliant job working with the European Union to sign up more than 100 countries to that pledge. And philanthropy stepped up. They've pledged hundreds of millions of dollars to do this. It was one of the truly exciting um, moments in in that at that COP was this pledge to reduce methane. But even there, this it's fascinating. If you, you know, for those of us who are deep into this in this fight and this struggle, you can see while these, while every, you know, dozens and then eventually, you know, 110 countries were committing to reducing methane by 30%, ExxonMobil um, was running um, paid ads saying that they too were signing up to the Global Methane Pledge everywhere. You couldn't open up any media without seeing an ExxonMobil advertisement um, on methane. So they are already anticipating where this fight is going while the rest of us are just beginning that fight. That's This is how this industry operates. They are really talented, really smart. They've got the best public relations agencies and the best advertising and marketing agencies the planet has ever seen um, working with them on this stuff. So is natural gas at odds or in competition with coal? Can natural gas end our dependency on coal? Uh, and if so, you know, you were saying that coal is dirtier in its extraction as well as its burning. Can natural gas save us from our dependency on coal? So traditionally it has. If you look at what's going on in the marketplace and take the United States as a good example, I will predict there's probably not going to be another new coal plant built in the United States ever again. It's just not going to happen. It's not cost effective. You can build a utility scale wind or solar plant right now um, cheaper from scratch than you can um, anything else. But what's happened with utilities is they tend to have some of them still have coal plants. They also have natural gas plants. So you can, you know, and they've got them both sitting there. And if depending upon the price, 
natural gas versus coal, if the price of natural gas goes up like it did last year quite a bit, they'll switch the coal plant back on. So that's why you see um, these utilities in the power sector going back and forth if, they've st if they still have coal plants. So we've got almost 200 coal plants still operating in the United States at any given time, or at least capable of operating. So it's possible that natural gas, again, only if none of it escapes, none of the methane escapes, if it's all captured, there's no leakage, it is a, it is a cleaner fuel um, burning when you burn it than coal. That is certainly the case. But the real truth, and this is what is, is going to take a bit to sort out with, with the consuming public, is you don't want either of those. The truth is we could go, the grid could adopt, the, the power grid, the electric grid could adopt renewable energy right now. There are some deep studies from the energy department, from academics at Berkeley and elsewhere that shows every state in the United States could get to nearly 100% electricity for power generation and elsewhere using renewable energy sources uh, within 10 to 15 years. All those studies are out there. It's a question of political will, not technology, um, in terms of how you replace a fossil fuel infrastructure as quickly as you can. So are we waiting for renewable resources to be profitable for the old oil and gas industry? Is that what we're waiting for? They already are, they already are profitable. What, but again, we're sort of deep in the weeds of how utilities do their business, but consumers are the front lines of, of how this operates. So if you've got an existing coal plant, and take West Virginia as a good example, they've got three big coal plants. Nearly every consumer in West Virginia gets their electricity from those three coal plants. Well, those same consumers paid hundreds of millions of dollars to keep those coal plants operating well into the future. Um, it raised their electricity prices and they're stuck with coal power and which is, you know, you know, which is polluting the, their air and polluting their waters. Um, and they're stuck with those higher rates. That's that tends to be what happens until somebody, you know, a community decides, oh, my gosh, it, this coal plant has outlived its usefulness. Um, both from an economic standpoint, but also from a polluting standpoint, and they shut it down. That's the the fight you're seeing play out in almost you know every community in America where you know coal power has uh, you know has has been the primary source of electricity. And then in places like China, where they really rely on coal you know, coal power, um, uh, that it's an even bigger fight. You've got the national government in China that would like to. Um, stop relying on coal, but the regional um, powers that be um, don't want to, you know, they, they want to continue to use coal power because they feel like they have to do that in order to keep the lights on. You also point out that there's little chance the oil and gas industry can defeat renewable energy in the long term. Wind, solar, and geothermal, which are clean and cost competitive, will eventually dominate energy markets. You were just talking about the subsidies that are given to the coal industry. Cost competitive, a conservative estimate for the anti-fossil fuel group Oil Change International stated that the U.S. gave $20.5 billion in subsidies to the oil industry alone. Meanwhile, globally, a report by the IMF put that figure at $5.5 trillion in 2020. Meanwhile, the journal Nature reported that the IEA and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development estimate that 52 advanced and emerging economies, representing about 90 percent of global fossil fuel supplies, gave subsidies worth an average of 550 billion U.S. dollars each year from 2017 to 2019. Considering that level of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, how surprising is it to you that, the, that wind, solar, and geothermal are cost competitive. 
It, it's it's really surprising to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's amazing to me that even without subsidies, wind, solar, geothermal, they're not only are they cost competitive, they're cheaper now to build. I, you know, if if I were starting a utility right now and wanting to provide, I, 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 that's the only thing I would look at. I would look at wind, solar. And, and geothermal. And if you're in the Midwest, you can use wind. If you're in Arizona or California or Florida, you can use sun. If you're if you're in a place where geothermal works, you use that. If you know, or hydropower in certain places, that is the future. It's clearly that's what you would do. The problem is we're stuck with a bunch of old coal plants and a bunch of old natural gas plants, and we're stuck with an existing infrastructure. And and that's part of what we wrote about the concluding section of the article that Naomi and I wrote about, there's a little agency called FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that nobody's ever heard of except for the oil and gas industry. At the start of the Trump administration, they went in and they proposed uh, interstate gas pipelines everywhere. It's like a, it was like a spider's web um, in, in the country. They proposed it. And because those gas pipelines at FERC are, had traditionally been rubber stamped, they just get approved. Once they're approved, um, then the, the company by right th- uh, can seize land and build the pipeline. It's called eminent domain. And it's, you know, they, they, they're granted those rights immediately. But what's more important is this is how smart they were. Once you've built that infrastructure and it's everywhere, then if you're a local utility commission or, and you're looking at what you're going to do, you look at that and say, Oh, well, pipelines are already place. They're going to be in place for 50 years, maybe a hundred years. Um, we'll just keep doing what we're doing, which is ship natural gas um, through it. That's how smart they're. So they prepared for the future. So before anybody even knew there was a fight to be had, they'd already laid down this infrastructure all across the country. Um, and there isn't a whole lot anybody can do, um, although a couple of states like New York and New Jersey are attempting you know, t- to deal with that, the, the question of eminent domain and, and FERC approval through other things. But it's a, I mean, and that's what we talk about at the end of the book, the, the, how smart this industry is looking f- you know, over the horizon to see where's the next battle and how can we win it before anybody even knows the, the battle has started. But when it comes to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, even under non-Trump presidencies, how much has the fossil fuel industry captured the FERC? After all, in January 2021, when President Biden took office, he appointed Richard Glick as chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And Glick has been the head lobbyist for energy firm Avangrid. So how much does the energy industry get bipartisan support for their role at the FERC? Well, the good news is FERC is clearly on more than more than just lobbyists and some law firms and the industry um, knows that FERC exists now. So that's the good news. I, it starts with, you know, just talking about it, making sure that people understand the stakes. So that's actually the good news. I think it, and, and, and for the first time, gosh, I think in FERC's history, they are now taking climate considerations into a pipeline approval. That has never happened before. That's so I, I, you know, I'm at least hopeful that you won't see 100 percent rubber stamp approval of of these pipelines. Um, You know, for the first time, um, folks have a fighting chance um, in front of that agency. So to you, what explains why now? Uh, Why things are going on right now? Because, look, in the I, I had I had three big jobs in the federal government. I can tell you that there is a there is massive inertia in the bureaucracy so take the interior department which over historically traditionally the interior department's job was both to protect natural resources but also to, to exploit 
natural resources. So you develop a program, you develop a budget, you develop a bureaucracy in it, and you develop subsidies, massive subsidies to these industries that go on and they just last and last and last and last and last. So while, you know, and, and that tends to be what happens, it takes quite a while to turn that massive titanic bureaucracy around and move it into a new direction. Um, it doesn't happen. It does, you know, it, even an executive order from the Oval Office in the White House, um, when the presidency changes hands, doesn't necessarily, you know, shift that. That's what you see going on at, at places like Interior Department or FERC or elsewhere, where for the longest time, the the regulated industry was largely the only folks sh um, showing up to 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 lobby for what was going on in those places. You were mentioning the kind of burn-off that we see of natural gas. I see that every time when I drive to my in-law's house uh, down in Bloomington, Illinois, from uh, Chicago, Illinois. So we're going through the central plains of Chicago or of Illinois, and you can see that burn-off happening in all the time. You mm -hmm. mentioned a couple of technologies, uh, induction stoves and heat pumps, too, that I have never heard of before and whenever a new technology a new alternative fuel technology is being discussed the you know counter to it the industry when when they're upset about these kind of new technologies they'll claim that they are far too expensive and they're outside mm -hmm. of the reach of any uh, outside of the reach of anybody who isn't rich so is that the case with induction stoves and heat pumps that they're only for the wealthy no, absolutely not the case, especially with heat pumps. Heat pumps, and uh, my friend Justin Gellis, who was a longtime climate reporter at the New York Times, has a big book coming out um, later this spring. He's going to focus a lot on heat pumps. Heat, heat pumps. Now, it's true, you have to own your home in order to get a heat pump, but you can also talk to, to, to folks about getting a heat pump installed in your home. But no, it's not other reasons. Everybody should have a heat pump if, if possible. We need to get heat pumps as fast as possible. We need to get to you know solar built into roof tiles um, on homes as fast as possible. Induction stoves are amazing stoves and they're not expensive compared to natural gas stoves. And if you have an induction stove, which is basically electricity heats it, you got a hot plate, you can cook on it, it spreads the heat out evenly, whereas natural gas, when when that flame burns, it can like, you know, you have to like, that's why you see chefs constantly moving their plates around to, to distribute the heat. You don't have to worry about that with an induction stove. It's an amazing um, type of stove. And there are lots and lots of chefs. We, in fact, we just um, watched a whole series of, of videos from Michelin star chefs who explain how amazingly interesting and easy it is to cook on an induction stove. So, I, but again, going back to the marketing, the massive marketing that's gone into this, everybody's convinced that oh, I guess if I want to have, you know, a decent meal, I got to cook with natural gas. It's just not true. So in a perfect world, every new home will have an induction stove and a heat pump, you won't have to rely, and, and you won't have to even worry about, you know, um, some of the climate and health implications of, you know, natural gas um, leaking into your home and potentially having a harmful effect on your kids. That's the other sort of lost fight in, in this. There are, there are environmental health scientists are starting to look at, you know, pollution from natural gas in the home, and it's real. It's a real concern, and I think it's only going to grow over time. Also, when it comes to alternative energy, whenever things come up, like you were saying, solar panels on the roof, 
of the roofs of our homes. Uh, it's often said that, well, that takes a ton of energy to create all of those solar panels as well. And so you're contributing to climate change simply by building and manufacturing solar panels. How do you feel about that criticism? Uh, there's there's some merit to that. Um, again, what what the what regulated industries are really good at doing is taking a kernel of truth and building an entire campaign around it. So while it's true that if you know uh, uh, there is a there is a cost, there's a climate cost, there's a carbon cost in that manufacturing. The truth is, if and all you have to do is look at a company like Tesla, um, which is has has you know built. Um, a manufacturing facility that has learned how to in, build a solar panel into a roof tile. It, it, we're at a point now with with this with this technology that if you wanted to build a new home, you could. It's probably cheaper to put up uh, roof tiles with solar already built into the roof tile on your home, so you get two for the price of one. You get cheaper roof tiles and you get you have solar so that you could reduce your, your energy costs um, in your home if you want to. That's where that's what and, and that's why you see and why I'm hopeful that there is, you know, at least the possibility of some bipartisan agreement around using innovation and technology um, to, to, to try to deal with some of this stuff. The only time Republicans have ever decided that they want to deal with climate change related stuff is to fund new R&D around things like that, engineering solar into roof tiles or or um, or, you know, or 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 trying to build advanced nuclear power um, uh, modular uh, stations or to do some other things. So at, so at least there we, we finally have a discussion that's more than just, you know, the, the Democrats talking about this issue. But that's not going to solve the problem. Um, it, it's just it's just one aspect of it. So let me play devil's advocate again. Why not? This is hell after all. So uh, so uh, the one of the things that you've been saying uh, recently, I saw a front page article this week on the New York Times about uh, electric cars and the problem with lithium batteries and lithium extraction and how that's going to be a major contributor to climate change or environmental destruction in the future. Mm-hmm. Are lithium batteries an obstacle to alternative fuel, especially to the production of lift of uh, electric cars they could be um and it's and it's and it's a and it's a worthwhile um discussion uh an issue Th- the truth is lithium you know the s- some of the materials that go into those batteries that drive your car that drive the electric cars and others are mined uh in bad places or in in tough places or not in the united states however i will also say everybody gets that now so you're starting to see um, other industries that are involved with, say, cellular phones like Apple and, 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 and others, they recognize this problem, too. So they are looking at ways to, to get at the lithium, get, to get at the critical materials that go into these things. I'm very confident. I worked at the National Science Foundation in two administrations for six years, and I know how the system works. Um, there are people racing to solve that problem right now. Yes, it's a problem, but it, it's, it's going to be solved soon. Um, I believe because everybody gets that that's a problem, but I also want to talk really quickly about one of the, one of the thing related to electric cars, because it's fascinating. And I, you know, a columnist at the Washington post wrote one of the silliest columns I've ever seen in the middle of that, right after that snowstorm that stranded cars on I-95 coming to Washington, DC, he said, Gosh, wouldn't it be? Imagine if everybody was driving an electric vehicle. How horrible it would have been when they when they ran out of power. Well, th- that's just not true. It, I mean, the truth is, uh, you know, and you, all you have to do is ask Tesla. 
um, and they'll give you the answer. A, a battery, you know, in an electric car allows you to stay in your car for a very long time, lots, you know, much longer than the time where your gas powered car runs out of gas and then sits there empty on the highway. But the problem is that, you know, these arguments get lost when people are, are trying to figure out what to do. Do I buy an electric vehicle? Do I buy a hybrid? Do I buy a gas powered car? If you're buying a car right now, you bet you should just buy an electric vehicle because you know within 10 15 years the internal combustion engine in cars it's going to be it's going to be like the you know the horse buggies it, it's going to be gone they're going to be gone nobody's every all the big manufacturers in the world are racing to electric vehicles because they know where the future is I was just asking you about lithium. Another front page article in the New York Times in the last couple of weeks was about cobalt extraction. Is that the mm -hmm. exact same situation with lithium batteries? It is, yes. And basically, there are, there are a variety of critical materials that go into you know, a lithium battery or, or batteries that are used in all sorts of consumer electronics, up to including batteries. The extraction of those critical materials is, uh, it, it, it can be a problem. It is a problem. Lots of folks get it. But, but also, the, the good news is everybody gets it. Everybody knows that it's a problem and everybody is trying to solve that problem as, as quickly as they possibly can. And when you, when you see so many industries across the board and, you know, whether it's the tech industry or the, the utility industry or the car industry or the, even the oil and gas industry, all racing to solve a problem, you can be, you, you can be sure that that problem is probably going to be solved uh, pretty quickly. But yes, cobalt, cobalt, it's, it's the same sort of problem. We are speaking with Jeff Nesbitt. He is co-author with Naomi Oreskes of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning. The oil and gas industry has refined its techniques to stay a step ahead over decades, and it has no plans to stop anytime soon. Jeff is the author of 2018's This is the Way the World Ends, How Droughts and Die-Offs, Heat Waves, and Hurricanes Are Converging on America. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Nesbitt. That's N-E-S-B-I-T. And find out more about Jeff at jeffnesbitt.net. So you and Naomi write that the oil and gas industry, quote, has confused the public about climate science, bought the eternal gratitude of one of America's two main political parties, and repeatedly outmaneuvered regulatory efforts. And it has done all this in part by thinking ahead and then acting ruthlessly, as I was quoting you earlier, while the rest of us were playing checkers, its executives were playing three-dimensional chess. So is it fair to say that the oil and gas industry has outsmarted the alternative fuel and energy sector, or is it simply a matter of the oil and gas industry having more money, more resources, and thus more influence, not only over the Republican Party, but in their advertising in the media that is seemingly ubiquitous. I would, I would argue that it's both of those things. I mean, there's no question. They've deployed hundreds of millions of marketing and advertising and public relations dollars toward protecting, sheltering, and advancing the industry. There's no question about that. You, can, you see it everywhere. You can't, you know, so that's certainly the case. But they are also, quite honestly, um, very, 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 very smart. I can tell you that um, the biggest uh, oil companies recruit from the very best engineering schools in the country. Um, they haven't lost their social license to do so yet. Um, will they in the future? I don't know. I guess we'll see. They're certainly worried about that. Um, but they have very, very, very smart folks. And just to give you two very quick examples, you know, the, you know it, this has been around for a long time. John Rockefeller, the very first Rockefeller that everybody understands, every, everybody remembers the famous, you know, Ida Tarbell wrote, you know, her definitive book on Standard Oil, broke up Standard Oil. 
what people then forget is John Rockefeller was planned who, you know, he was planning for this and he saw this coming and he took stock in the 33 little standard oil uh, companies that got broken up, spread them out geographically, made sure they didn't compete with each other. His wealth tripled after the, after the breakup, he became the first, the world's first billionaire by planning for how the world would react, um, you know, going forward. Uh, so we, we talk a little bit about that. Um, we also talk about the fact that Dr. Seuss was a standard oil man, that one of the most successful ad uh, campaigns in history um, was, you know, directly out of the oil and gas industry before he was the beloved Dr. Seuss. Um, it is, but I will also, and I'll just conclude with this very quickly. They, while the climate science world was trying to figure out how big a problem climate change was, the oil and gas industry scientists were right there beside them. They weren't trying to block it. They were, and they weren't trying to redirect anything. They were listening to everything, reporting back to their companies so that they could plan for the future. That is really smart. If you want to know what the other side is going to be doing, just send a legion of spies or, or, or sympathetic folks and just listen, just listen to what they're doing, take part. Um, and it, you know, at worst you can obfuscate and, and delay at best, you can hear what's happening so that you can plan for the future. And that's what they did. So do you think that's what the oil and gas industry is doing now that they are playing a kind of John D. Rockefeller strategy? Because I'm wondering how exaggerated is the success of antitrust stories of the early 20th century? Because the New York Times recently reported that President Biden may employ antitrust legislation and litigation in an attempt to break up the corporate conglomeration that some critics like former Labor Secretary Robert Reich are saying is at the heart of inflation. Is our hope for antitrust to break up big oil and big gas rooted in a an exaggerated hope, if not a myth. It could be. I, I it's certainly a valid question. Uh, you know whether it's a myth or exaggerated. It's certainly a valid question whether that will actually achieve what you hope it will achieve. I know that that tends to be a hope of folks, but I can tell you, in the case of what John T. Rockefeller did, not only did it not work, it actually accelerated things. And then the the little the you know the little the the companies that broke up later came back and merged with each other. Mobile grew up, Exxon grew up, and then became Exxon Mobile. So that's how you know these things tend to work. <clears throat> so I think you shouldn't plan on you know you know antitrust uh, breaking up things working. It it uh, it's, it's certainly a valid question. I you know it, it's not something I've studied at length. Um, Naomi. My co-author has studied it uh, more than more than me. If she were on the show, she could talk eloquently about that. But it's certainly something worth worth talking about. You write that not only the contributions of advertising, but you also write that years later, ExxonMobil would take that cleverness to new heights in its advertorials. They weren't about clever characters like the Dr. Seuss characters, but they were awfully clever, containing few, if any, outright lies, but a whole lot of half-truths and misrepresentations. As somebody who is an exceptional communicator, why do you think half-truths and misrepresentations are more successful at influence, influencing public opinion than straight, outright lies? Well, it's because you know a kernel of truth that that's wrapped inside of a of propaganda, bigger lie, travels a very long way. The the mobile ads and you know Naomi Oreskes and her team at Harvard have studied this pretty extensively. They looked at those mobile ads that ran. I think they ran on a weekly basis in the New York Times for years, for years and years and years, and it made it appear as if they were being reasonable. They were looking at this, but what the net effect of 
of those advertorials and the marketing and advertising that they were they, that they were engaging in throughout all that time delayed a consensus <clears throat> around the harms that were being perpetrated. So so and, and that's actually a tactic. First, you you, you try to um, stop things. Then you try to obscure things. Then you try to cast doubt on things. And then when 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 you've gone through all that process, then you try to co-opt things so that you can direct traffic where it goes. We've seen all of that play out. And those mobile advertorials uh, you're talking about, the New York Times, they were they were at a point in time where the, the, what the industry was clearly trying to do was to delay the public's conclusion that oh my gosh this is causing harm in the atmosphere and ultimately to us the human species and it delayed um, widespread knowledge of the harms for that for a very long time and I will just say very quickly because I spent years in the tobacco wars um, that it was the same the exact the exact same playbook people have forgotten there there was a long period of time where science was saying well we're not quite sure cigarettes cause lung cancer. We're not quite sure about that. That doubt lasted for years and years and years, and it was created and manufactured doubt that delayed the public understanding the harms from that product. It's the same playbook you see it play out over and over and over when an industry um, feels threatened, um, especially with a product that's causing harm either to the environment uh, or to consumers. And that was a really fascinating part about your Naomi's article to me. That is the success of climate change delay over the idea of climate change denial. I thought that was very fascinating because that's because their message is uh, it's evolving and it's getting mm -hmm. better. Back in June of last year, CNBC reported big oil is likely to face an exponential increase in climate lawsuits over the coming years, a trend that analysts mm -hmm. say is reminiscent of act activists uh, turning to the courts to take on the tobacco industry. The process of a rising tide of climate litigation cases against heavy emitting businesses comes shortly after a landmark courtroom defeat for Royal Dutch Shell. Now this happened after a Royal Dutch uh, or a Dutch court, sorry, ordered Royal Dutch Shell to take much more aggressive actions to drive down its carbon <clears throat> emissions. What are the prospects for the oil and gas industry to be held legally responsible and accountable for their lies about fossil fuel and climate change as the tobacco industry was held responsible for knowingly distributing addictive products that cause cancer leading to millions of deaths. I tell you what, that, that this is a really fascinating fight. The litigation fight is fascinating. <clears throat> and there's some direct analogies here to the tobacco wars. For the longest time, the biggest law firms in the country were re representing the tobacco industries. They won case after case after case. They had they were 100%. They won every single case in 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 court until they didn't. There was and and when that first case started to leak out of their control, then it was a tidal wave after that, and it led uh, eventually to uh, you know the the global tobacco settlement, uh, where the industry sued for peace for 25 years, um, and the in the tobacco wars case in the tobacco litigation, 46 out of 50 attorneys generals, including a whole bunch of Republican AGs, said, "Oh my gosh, you know all of our healthcare costs in our states are directly responsible, so we need to try to recover those costs." In the case of in, in the litigation around the oil and gas industry, the the great hope of these same law firms who represent the tobacco industries are now representing many of these oil companies. Their great hope is that they can move these cases into federal court, no matter where the federal court is, anywhere in the country, and that it'll eventually kick up to the Supreme Court, which they now basically own. Um, so their hope is 
They'll push all these cases into federal court, goes to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court will protect them, and they'll be fine. That's not going to be the case because if you see what's happening right now, it's happening in real time, sort of off the front pages, is a lot of these cases aren't going to the federal courts. They're being ruled that they need to stay in their state courts. So if the Massachusetts Attorney General, who has filed a lawsuit based on advertising practices and others, says this belongs in Massachusetts because Massachusetts consumers are being harmed, it's going to remain in Massachusetts or in you know another state. That is a different ballgame in terms of litigation. So my prediction is that litigation over over time and maybe in a very short period of time will also start to move the discussion, move the dialogue and force it the way we saw um, litigation work during the tobacco wars. You also point out that the oil and gas industry was employing a strategy pioneered by tobacco companies, but with a twist. Beginning in the 1950s, the tobacco industry cultivated a sotto voce network of scientists at scores of American universities and medical schools whose work it funded. Some of these scientists were actively engaged in research to discredit the idea that cigarette smoking was a health risk, but most of it was more subtle. The industry supported research on causes of cancer and heart disease other than tobacco, such as radon, asbestos, and diet. It was a form of dis- misdirection designed to re- deflect our attention away from the harms of tobacco and onto other things. And you ask what self-respecting scientists would take tobacco industry money after that. So were some, uh, why didn't the tobacco industry's lawsuits that revealed scientists being paid to purposely mislead the public not cause a heightened awareness of uh, interest by scientists in the oil and gas industry because these articles ended up being in <laughs> peer-reviewed magazines, and that's supposed to be a self-regulatory issue uh, situation mm-hmm. when it comes to science. So why? Why didn't the tobacco industry lawsuits that revealed scientists being paid and scientists backing uh, certain industries that are clearly harmful? Well, I'll tell you what, they sure should have because once it started to become known uh, what was going on, uh, it, I, I think the science community was pretty shocked. And, and again, so that everybody understands how this worked, you had a tobacco institute that funneled lots of money through their law firms to scientists in academia to basically lie about the harms of tobacco, to sort of cutting to the chase about how this worked. And for the longest time, there was the assumption that attorney-client privilege would shield any knowledge of that financial transaction. So you had this network of scientists everywhere, you know, at public universities, private universities, all over the country, all sort of moving in one direction, all funded to throw cast doubt on whether um, smoking cigarettes um, caused lung cancer and caused health harms. Um, and that lasted for a very long time until it didn't, until th- the discovery process and litigation started to kick some of these documents forward into the public archives. And now, if you go to UCSF, they have the entire tobacco industry archives. Uh, I built an entire book around those uh, those internal industry documents. So if you're a scientist, you know, working in one field and you see how that worked in another field, absolutely, you should want to pay attention to that. But I will say this, this is how smart the oil and gas industry is and how they deal with this. They saw what happened to, you know, to to that network of, of scientists who were being paid to lie about tobacco. They didn't try to replicate that because it clearly didn't work and then blew up in their faces. Instead, you have to have a much more sophisticated approach, which is, you know, allow some scientists to do research, let the science go forward, 
send your scientists to IPCC meetings and elsewhere, just come alongside. And then, it, you know, then you're not, you know, it's, it's a much more sophisticated game because you're trying to say, well, we're not quite so sure about whether this is going to cause harm or maybe it's going to take 50 years or maybe it's going to take 60 years. Um, meanwhile, the oceans are the warmest in recorded human history. That study that just came out yesterday should shock everybody. Um, there's been an eightfold increase in warming in the oceans because oceans trap 90% of all um, uh, 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 greenhouse gases that are emitted. Um, I mean, the impacts are, and this was the earlier book I wrote, this is the way the world, and I wanted to show, we're seeing severe climate impacts right now. It's not going to occur 50 years from now, but the main marketing message that you're seeing from the, natural, the oil and gas industry is we need a transition. We need an orderly transition. Give us 40 years. Give us 50 years. We'll make that transition. Well, we don't have 40 or 50 years. We need to move this energy transition along as fast as humanly possible. So whether it's the New York Times or universities, a lot of critics say that when it comes to the oil and gas industry, it's kind of a pay to play system. To what extent is it fair to say that the oil and gas industry was paying off universities so the industry could continue to knowingly contribute to climate change? That, <laughs> I, if you were talking to a university development officer who would say, well, we just took a big grant. You know, and there are some of the most prestigious universities in the country have taken huge grants. And what they will argue is, well, we're just studying that energy transition. And there's some truth to that. Sure, they are. They're studying that energy transition. But again, you have to be cognizant of the real game that's going on here. The real game now is let's try to delay this energy transition for as long as we possibly can. Let's try to maintain the status quo as long as we possibly can. But the truth is, we need. We need to move that energy transition along as fast as we can. We need innovation technology um, to move as rapidly as possible. We need to see disruption in the energy industry um, move as fast as we possibly can, like you saw in the tech industry. And let me tell you, just tell you a very quick story. And I, I apologize, I'll do this as quickly as I can. Google's first million dollars came from the National Science Foundation long before there were, you know, that was when the entire World Wide Web was stored on Stanford's um, uh, computers. That was in 1995 when they became Google Inc. They went around even to the New York Times and said, you know, we'd like to give you a big chunk of Google. If you know, want you invest in this, New York Times could have owned a significant chunk of Google for almost nothing. They said, no, why? What's, what's, what's this? What's this Google thing? What's the internet? What's the World Wide Web? That was in 1995. Ten years later, the tech industry titans were had taken over the world. You know, they're now the top three, four, five companies in the world. That transition happened very, very, very quickly. We need that same transition to occur in the energy sector. Every bit is fast. And that's the battle that we're in right now. Is it going to be super fast or is it going to be 40, 50, 60 years and we're going to watch basically the world go to hell? One of the things that you point out is that uh, this is something that needs to be addressed right now. What happens when environmentalists see a future without fossil fuels, without addressing the present of fossil fuels? Is the problem something that needs to be addressed immediately, not in some near future? Well, the truth is, it's not, the energy transition is going to be a transition. The question is how quickly that transition is. And so take, I mean, let, let's just use cars as an example. States are setting, California has said, 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 we don't want a single new internal combustion engine car on the road 
um, by 2035. So they've set a deadline. So you're seeing that transition occur and you're seeing big companies there at least there's at least two companies now that's already planning. They're not going to build any more internal combustion engines. So they get it. They're moving as fast as they possibly can, but there's still going to be gas powered cars on the road for maybe 10 or 15 years, because if you've got an old car, you're going to hang on to it for quite a long time before you feel like, Oh, I've got to move to a hybrid or an electric vehicle. So there is a transition. It's clear that there's going to be that transition. The question is the fundamental question is this, is it going to be a 10 year transition or a 10 or 15 year transition, or is it going to be a 70 year transition? It's, uh, which is what you know, which is where you see the oil and gas industry marketing um, headed. They're basically saying, let's just wait and see how bad things get, and let's just let this transition play out over time. And nobody needs to regulate, nobody needs to litigate, nobody needs to like uh, deal with this. Let's just see how you know, and then we'll let the transition take place uh, over time. We don't have time for that. And you point out that eminent domain, as you were saying earlier, when it comes to pipeline, eminent domain gives a company the legal right to build a pipeline through landowners' properties, and there is nothing they or state or county officials can do about it. A couple of states have successfully, though temporarily, blocked pipelines by invoking federal statutes such as the Clean Water Act. But if those state cases reach the Supreme Court, the current <laughs> Supreme Court, the three justices, Trump appointed Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, are almost certain to write, to rule in the industry's favor. And this is not something, you know, uh, climate change, environmentalism. When, uh, when I was listening to all of those confirmation hearings, that's not something that came up. People were more concerned about uh, women's, uh, you know, uh, the right to mm -hmm. choose and other things that are very important. But will the Supreme Court, as currently constituted, in your, in your opinion, continue to allow the fossil fuel industry to contribute to climate change? Is the law on the side of climate change and not alternative clean fuels that are cost competitive with the same amount of government subsidies that the fossil fuel industry receives? I don't think people realize what the Supreme Court is about to do. So, I, so you're exactly right. What, you know, there are some very big issues that the Supreme Court, you know, Roe versus Wade, huge critical issue that the Supreme Court's, you know, already signaling they're going to reverse. Um, and people are, are uh, justifiably really angry about that. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to the energy um, transition and what's about to happen, I don't think people realize what is probably going to happen, I would predict, this year in 2022. The Supreme Court reached down into the Second Court of Appeals and they pulled up a case they didn't even have to consider because they wanted to dismantle um, the ability for a regulatory agency like the EPA to use its flexibility to deal with climate change, greenhouse gases, toxic pollutants, air pollutants, water pollutants. This Supreme Court is almost certainly going to um, do everything that they possibly can to restrict the federal agency's ability to regulate those affected industries. Um, and the net effect of that means that they would force Congress to like specifically ban toxic chemicals or specifically deal with greenhouse gases. That's very, 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 very difficult for Congress to do. Um, it's been an end game um, for the funding network um, to, to re-engineer the Supreme Court. They now have the Supreme Court that they want, and they're starting to see the payoff for that. And in this particular case, um, I, I would predict they're probably almost certainly going to see that payoff at the Supreme Court.
You and Naomi also write, the American Petroleum Institute paid millions to run its first ever Super Bowl ad in 2017, portraying gas as an engine of innovation that powers the American way of life. To you, was that uh, political advertising? Because a, a 2020 USA Today report stated that presidential campaign ads for Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg were the first political ads aired nationally during the Super Bowl since 1989, with the exception of a 2010 anti-abortion ad, there has been no recent political messaging during the game in decades. Yet, as you state, the American Petroleum Institute was running ads during the Super Bowl in 2017. To you, and maybe not to the U- to USA Today, do those ads constitute political advertising? Well, it's a good question. If you use words like patriotism and freedom and the American way of life, that looks an awful lot like politics to me. And, but that's clearly the, by design. You want to invoke that, you know, fossil fuels are, you know, have are been built into the American way of life. It's part of our freedom. It's patriotic. That's by design. So, um, you know, is it a political ad and that they're supporting one candidate or another? No, technically no. But, um, you know, clearly... Um, that ad was was meant to appeal to a big political demographic. There's no question about that. One last question for you, Jeff. Jeff Nesbitt is co-author with Naomi Oreskes of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Nesbitt. That's N-E-S-B-I-T. And you can find out more about Jeff at jeffnesbitt.net. Our final question we do with all of our guests, I promise is what we call the question from hell. The question we mm. hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's where the category that this is going to fall into. As <laughs> I said during your introduction, you wrote the 2015 book, Poison Tea, How Big Oil and Big Tobacco Invented the Tea Party and Captured the GOP, which exposed for the first time the close ties between the tobacco industry and Koch donor network front groups. The Koch brothers are Charles and David Koch. David passed away in 2019. After David's mm-hmm. passing, the New York Times ran an article saying that uh, Charles would be changing the way the Koch Foundation would be approaching politics, <laughs> that they may even step back from their ultra-conservative funding ways, becoming less politically engaged. So I have a, lucky you, I have a two-part question from Al for you. Uh, <laughs> did you believe David's death would lead to the remaining Koch brother to be less politically ex- engaged? And second, how much can we blame the misinformation campaign by the oil and gas industry on the work of the Koch brothers or the remaining Koch brother? Well, that's an easy question for me. I no, I was, I did not believe that they, that the tiger was going to suddenly lose their stripes, um, and uh, no, I did not think that they were going to back off, um, and that's been the case. All you know, hundreds of millions of dollars still going to Americans for Prosperity, still going to all the biggest groups. Um, there's, you know, it's that's you know, the, the younger generation that's that that's come along. They've made noises that they'd like to see a change. But it hasn't changed, so I so no. Simple, simple answer is no. Um, when, once you once you own a republic, you know one one of the two political parties, you're going to give up that control voluntarily. I don't think so. Um, that's not the way the political system works. So um, the first the answer to the first part is no. It, 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 you know that it, it wasn't going to happen. Would they like people to believe that it was going to happen? Sure, because you know that's good PR, and they had some very good public relations experts who were advising them and helping them on that. I do think there is. It's an interesting question. I you know I've not met Charles Koch. I have met David Koch, um, and but clearly, if you look at you know Charles Koch's history, he 
you know, really doesn't like to see subsidies um, tilt the playing field for industries. What I've never understood is his father developed, um, you know, they cracked crude oil. It was an innovative system. It wasn't subsidized. Why would he be in league with an industry that's, that is massively subsidized? Hundreds of billions of dollars go into subsidies for the industry that you know, his core uh, company is part of. It, it doesn't make any sense. If you genuinely believe that you shouldn't tilt the playing field and have subsidies, why are you supporting a party that supports all of those subsidies? It doesn't make any sense to me. I've ne it's never made any sense to me. But uh, you know, but of course, you know, there's politics and then there's, and then there's big business. And then there's the bottom line. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the bottom line. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for being on our show today. I really appreciate it. Again, Jeff Nesbitt wrote the article, the Gizmodo article with Naomi Oreskes, how big oil rigs the system to keep winning. And you should check it out online. Thank you so much for being on our show, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having, thanks for having me. Certainly. And now after we talk to a former federal government employee, Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell If That Conversation with Jeff Nesbitt, co-author of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning, was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is Hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. Sebastian or Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Helen. Tell us how our listening audience is replying. This week's question from Hell was, what are you testing positive for? And Neil C. writes on Facebook about 15 deadly diseases, but Elizabeth Holmes drew my blood, so I'm probably okay. <laughs> I wouldn't bet on that. Aaron B. writes... Elon Musk-itis and crabs. <laughs> and crabs. <sighs> Marco G says, a case of the Mondays. <laughs> uh, yeah, this week's question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? Jeff G says, all of the drugs uh, I have been taking to drown out my existential dread. Here, here! <laughs> Uh, I like the peanut gallery you have over there today, Sebastian. They should be a regular feature during when you're producing. Kobe S. says, misanthropy. <laughs> and Benjamin C. says, being a smartass. All right, and we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. By the way, if you want to read a really great story about having crabs... You should check out Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries. Very entertaining point in that book where he goes and visits his girlfriend at the corner of Seaman and Cummings Street. Those are That's an actual intersection in New York and his problems with crabs. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live now every Thursday. That's right. The pod Patreon podcast has moved to Thursdays and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you do become a Patreon subscriber, you get a $5 discount on all of our merchandise by using a secret code word. You can only find that out 
if you subscribe to patreon.com slash this is hell on this week's Patreon podcast happening on Thursday live at 10 a.m. Chicago time podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. It's this week in hell, our semi-regular review of what I've learned from this week's this is hell, but may not be what you learned from this week's show. Keep in mind. You may have learned something completely different from this week's show than I did. In fact, you may have had a better understanding of our guests and their topics and insights than I did. After all, it's very, 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 very likely you are far smarter than I am. However, this week in hell is not only this week is not only about my week here on air. It will also be about my week off air, as well as some stuff about this week's show that I cannot mention over the air on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment, where this is hell has its world broadcast premiere every Saturday morning, or for that matter, we cannot mention on our abbreviated broadcasts, other over-the-air abbreviated broadcasts on Chicago's Lumpen Radio, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, or on the free forum, non-profit, non-commercial, United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware, where you can also hear This Is Hell, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. It's a week for me that's filled with abstinence, uh... An odd feeling, I should say abstention, Uh, a little of both, an odd feeling of, well, I wouldn't call it optimism as well as I would refer to it as anti-pessimism, as well as a realization of how Obamacare is funded on the backs of students and their loans and what the media determines as political speech and what it claims is not. And then there's my concerns I mentioned previously about the chronic pain in my throat that may or not may not be caused by the chronic. Also on Patreon, we will be sharing our second interview we ever did with a guest who appeared on this week's show, Henry Giroux. Why why the second interview, you may ask? Why not the first? Because we already shared the first conversation we had with Henry when he was on back in 2009. We already shared that on Patreon. And if you want to hear that, you can subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon and search on Henry's name. You can just find the interview that way. So this week on Patreon, it's our second talk with Henry from February 2010. Henry was on that year to discuss his most recent book at the time, which was has the happy title of Youth in a Suspect Society, Democracy or Disposability, which means this week on Patreon, it's this week in hell, this week in my personal hell, and some historical background on the show that just may blow your mind, or it may not, but I have no idea what state your mind is in. And we'll be sharing our 2010 conversation with Henry Giroux, who was not so optimistic back in 2010, but was oddly optimistic on this week's show. Come to think of it, Henry's always been kind of Hopeful, despite writing books with happy titles like Youth in a Suspect Society, Democracy or Disposability. But if you want to hear that, you must subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Thursday and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I've been feeling pressure to be optimistic lately. My friends encourage. A listener, a communist mailman in New Jersey, insists. Henry Giroux opines. My mother sent me a book by Jane Goodall called Hope. That's a lot of heat. I have no choice but to go to my happy places to seek out this elusive optimism. Optimism. 
the happy places in my mind. Of course, I can't bring you to my happy places in the material world. I could so endeavor with words, but those words would be the product of the experiences of my happy places cycling through my mind as I compose them. So one way or the other, you're stuck with the happy places in my mind. Here's an amusement. A friend told me, People can now eat pig hearts or get them as transplants, but they must choose only one of the above. I replied, what if you get the transplant, dine for a couple of years on aromatic herbs, truffles, and oils, and then have it removed, prepared, and served to you? He suggested that some scientists, more hungry than ethical, have been urging pig-hearted transplantees to eat a lot of basil and to be sure to leave their organs to science. He also said that the restaurant he's creating the new menu for wanted to do a pig heart dish, but due to the new demand for pig hearts, the price has skyrocketed. Hearts are notoriously rubbery and full of cartilage. He and I once made a calf's heart soup in a medieval convent converted to a residence for social workers in Kilkenny, Ireland, and that sucker took hours and barely became remotely chewable. As for his restaurant menu, I told him he'd be better off with a softer organ, Although that's not what she said, I quipped at the end. Speaking of tender organs, recently a friend of ours, an old writer almost exactly 20 years my senior, by the name of Jay Wolpert, passed away. He wrote the 2002 version of The Count of Monte Cristo and Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. He loved cinematic sword fights in a swashbuckling vein. He was a big fan of Stuart Granger in 1952's Scaramouche, which he screened for us back when he could still remember who I was. I don't know what a swashbuckle is, and I don't think he ever told me. I met him in the last few years of his life. We eventually had a lot of friends in common from the place in Laurel Canyon where we all used to get coffee before the COVID scourge. I've talked about this place on the show before. Jay would share his apple Danish with his large dog, Levi, and give everybody hell in that funny Jewish old guy way. The coffee place has since been overrun with fascists calling themselves libertarians who took over while sensible people were staying away. Now the coffee place in Joni Mitchell's Canyon is lousy with fascists. During the first big lockdown, when things were taken a tad more seriously than they are now, at least by some of us, we Canyon coffee people would meet on Zoom every other day and chew the fat. Only a few of us. One aged but lively couple lives in London, but has a daughter in the canyon they fly here to visit. It's the same situation with another aged but lively couple in New Zealand. And there's one woman who's Irish, yet somehow works in Munich, but lives in Atlanta. Time zones are an issue, but we make it work. Anyway, Jay, the old writer, was a real Jewish showbiz character. He could have been in Sid Caesar's writing room if he'd been born early enough in the last century. But he began to deteriorate due to old people's delirium, even before the time we defaulted to Zoom, during which his Alzheimer's got far worse, and it was very sad. And eventually, as I say, he died last week. And we in the Canyon Zoom Coffee Club watched his funeral it seemed like a reform or conservative Jewish funeral. Definitely not orthodox. The funeral was this past Sunday. His widow, Roz, his two daughters, I think, and his best friend, Tom or Bob, all gave excellent eulogies. They were all heartbroken but expressed vividly how he'd made their lives happy. The woman in New Zealand, we'll call her Parvati, 
is a unique character herself. And the story goes that after meeting Jay at, at the Canyon Coffee, she told her husband Rex, I've fallen in love. And she and Rex, who's still her husband, both still tell that story. The woman was raised in an orphanage in India, was adopted into a Kiwi family, and became a flight attendant and dresser of hair. And she's one of those people, I don't know how you become one of these people, but she has become one of these people who just thinks everything she comes across that's wonderful is just so wonderful. She will say this, Jeffrey, I'm the type of person who, when I meet someone I adore, I just treasure that person. Anyway, she gushes about beauty and marvelousness, and sometimes I make fun of it because, of course, I'm emphatically not that type of person. But you should really make friends with that type of person. Don't make friends with too many people like me because I will... Well, I don't really want to tell you what I will do. Let's keep a little mystery in this relationship, shan't we? So this Kiwi woman, Parvati, as Jay's cognition was deteriorating, it hit her very hard. And when Roz now his widow, would come on Zoom or relay through someone else the way Jay was deteriorating, now physically as well, Parvati was very unhappy. The day we found out he died, she was engulfed in sorrow. She took Jay's life and marriage and career and children and grandchildren and wife's burden and dog into account, filling an ocean with the tragedy of the loss of all that and engulfing herself in the deluge. As I say, the funeral was broadcast for people who couldn't come because that's the world we live in now. And we all in the Canyon Coffee Club watched it live on Sunday. And Monday, we were all on Zoom. And this Indian Kiwi woman, Parvati, seemed to have processed it all. And she brought into the room so we could look at it, a tiger lily plant, which she'd chosen because it was sturdy. And she would tied a small piece of wood to it as a cross piece. She'd done this quite a while ago, and she'd found all these monarch butterfly chrysalises in her garden. She'd been observing the monarch caterpillars all summer, and she later found their chrysalises on fennel stalks, and she cut the fennel stalks and fastened them to this tiger lily cross, and some of the chrysalises she had fastened to the wooden cross piece with what we persist in calling scotch tape, but what people in other English-speaking countries call cello tape or something, or at least they do in New Zealand. And Monday morning... She brought before us this tiger lily cross with all these chrysalises dangling from it and some of the butterflies had emerged and were drying their wings. Five had come out and were in various stages of recovery from their metamorphosis. And it looked like there were at least 12 more to go. And she expected all of them to come out by the end of the day and I'm, I'm sure they did. As she held the cross, she described what she could see, looking so closely at them, the butterflies' abdomens inflating and contracting, pulsing to push their wings open, pulsing to push them to new life, and crystal drops of fluid dripping off them as the orange and black white mosaic wings slowly opened and closed. I'd seen people keep one chrysalis in a jar or a terrarium and protect it until it came to term, so to speak. Uh, but I had never seen anything like this, and I couldn't have imagined it. As she described what she was seeing, and we saw what we were seeing, she also threw in some remarks about loving nature and how marvelous and how she was protecting these creatures from the wasps in the garden that wanted to turn them into food. There she held this Charlie Brown Christmas tree-like cross with chrysalises and butterflies, sun-colored wings, slowly fanning. The monarchs, you know, 
were reported declining in the, on the Mexican end of their migration in the central highlands. The eastern monarch migration is the big one, the long one, the one during which four generations of monarchs passed their torches. A lot of people in the U.S. started planting milkweed and encouraging others to plant milkweed to fatten up the monarch ranks. Milkweed habitats in the U.S. having been shriveled by an array of effects from our worlds being dominated by a salivating, rabid menagerie of profit interests. No one knows for sure if the milkweed helped or even if it was necessary. Forest depletion south of the border and climate change consequences in Mexico and Texas possibly causing the decline. Even the decline is debatable thanks to the difficulty of counting butterflies and the many competing agendas pushing and pulling at the data here in the golden age of warped narratives. The monarch migration means a lot to a lot of people. It has meant a lot to me. I was with a girlfriend up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan back in the 1980s. We were camping near a place I'd once gone to before and enjoyed it. It was part of the Great Lakes maritime history, and we were also in search of a small green wooden booth called Clyde's Hamburgers, which we found no longer existed. But the camping and swimming were excellent, and we were treated to a majestic squall line rumbling over the lake over us, flashing its lightning, dragging behind it a heavy thunderstorm, and in the morning, as we were walking out of the woods, millions of orange, white, and black stained glass butterflies were floating around us like autumn leaves. With that firm organ, my sturdily constructed heart, rubbery and not unlike that of a pig, happy in its happy place as a pig in its own, I'm doing the work again because I've tried this more than once. Like planets and suns do with gravity, the massive inhumanity of humans toward everything good stretches dense in the fabric of space-time, but gravity is considered an extremely weak force compared to the other forces. Even a butterfly can defy it temporarily. I hope no one expects more from me than they would a butterfly. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. First, I think that that Jane Goodall book that you mentioned, Hope. Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that was edited by Ronaldo Magaldi, who does This Week in Rotten History. Well, I would like to hear that from his face, but I, 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 good. I'm glad it's a well-edited book. I have not opened it because I'm not ready for hope yet. Also, I hear the crowds gathering and building gallows in front of your home, so we should probably let you go for the execution that you're. Yeah, I gotta be there. Oh my god, it's gonna be thrilling. Yeah, and if you're not there, what's the execution all about, right? Exactly. Who are they going to execute? I know. You're the star of the show, man. So uh, until next week. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding to the question. This week's question from hell. Oh, it's, it's Alex, Alex now. Is What are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Mark C says scorpions. Just a whole lot of scorpions. <laughs> Margie says COVID-22. And via email, DM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Joel G says, radical hope. It's all Henry's fault. John B says, I'm testing positive for patriotitis. The more I learn of our country's actions that are kept out of the media and history books, the less American pride I have. Hefe says, THC. 
Vesef says, type 1 and type 2 CRT. <laughs> what are you testing positive for? Genevieve says, I have tested positive for a traumatic disassociation, so luckily I don't have to put up with any more of this nonsense. <laughs> Old Pals Hypocrite Reader says, vibes, and the doctors say it's terminal. And finally, oh, not finally, I got more, but uh, Drifa G says, I just tested positive for the disease that wiped out the Golga Frinchians. Oh, guess right. I should have seen the telephone sanitizers as people all along. <laughs> and uh, a couple via Twitter. Old pal, eatfart69, says, <laughs> Apparently writing like a dumbass since the package I sent made it to Chicago, was marked return to sender, and ended up in my mailbox yesterday. <laughs> Rock Taster says, heavy metal. And finally, Alexis C says, cheery optimism. This is great. And then sent us a nightmarish picture of a farmer in Turkey who has fitted his cows with virtual reality goggles to make them think they're outside in summer pastures. Yeah, yeah it's a really disturbing image. I've seen that. So the answers I liked the most were Benjamin C saying that he's tested for positive for being a smart ass. Kobe S saying that he's tested for, or they've tested for misanthropy. Jeff saying all the drugs I've been taking to drown out my existential dread. Joel G saying radical hope. It's all Henry's fault. Mark C saying scorpions. I like that. Vess F type 1 and type 2 CRT. Uh, Borky saying panic. Sheer bloody panic. Alex saying uh, Alex G saying negative attitude. Fabio saying existential exhaustion. Garrett saying apathy. I guess. So that makes this week's winner. Well, Let's go with, uh, geez, Alex cheered it on. So Jeff G saying all of the drugs I've been taking to drown out, to, uh, drown out my existential dread. That's this week's winner of the question from hell. Our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Congratulations, uh, Jeff G. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support and we'll get it in the mail to you post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are you testing positive for? Who knows? But I'm seeing my doctor tomorrow, and I will hopefully know shortly after because this sore throat is potentially killing me. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet to be on next week's show? Yep. Still working on Monday, but on Tuesday, uh, Amy Cooter will be on to talk about her Scientific American article, Citizen militias in the U.S. are moving toward more violent extremism. No, oh, that sounds like fun. And then on Wednesday, uh, courtesy of uh, Dan from CPR, uh, we're going to be having Roberto Lovato on to talk about his Alta Online piece, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Yeah, that's the uh, psychedelics and gentrification that I was discussing earlier. Uh, so thanks to, first of all, uh, this week's Hangover Cure is an Elka-Seltzer old-fashioned. Thanks to this week's guests, including Henry Giraud, who wrote the Truth Out article, Amid Apocalyptic Cynicism, Let's Embrace Radical Hope in the New Year. Thanks to John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Lie. And thanks to the person we just spoke with, Jeff Nesbitt, co-author of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning. Thanks to Alexander Jerry and Sebastian Wooper for producing. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com, now streaming live and posted on Thursdays when I'll be giving another installment of our semi-regular segment, This Week in Hell. But this week, it's not only what I learned from this week's show, which may not be what you got out of this week's show, but also my own personal hell and some stuff we cannot mention on air but we can hide behind a paywall. We will also be sharing our second interview we ever did with a guest from this week's show, the one and only Henry Giroux, Henry Giroux an interview we did almost 
12 years ago to the day. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a supporter of This Is Hell by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. By the way, our Patreon subscription is not as expensive as most Patreon subscriptions. And we give the show away for free the rest of the week, which explains why I am still your bitter blind, very broke, Gaptooth radio show host Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.